Good morning. My name is Nick. I'm the associate minister here at Knox. And I hope that some of you were as excited to come to church this morning as some of our kids were to leave and go to Kidsmen. That was really amazing to see. Um, they must be having lots of fun up there. And I hope that we're having fun and a meaningful time engaging with the living God together in worship. Some of you are new faces to me this morning, and perhaps some of you joining us online are just joining us for the first week this week. And so a little bit of a recap. We've been walking through this book of Mark together. And in Mark 8, a few weeks ago, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And from that point on, we've been on a journey with Jesus toward the cross. Jesus has shared with his disciples that he must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And he has taken every opportunity that he can to reveal to them the deeper truths of who he is, what his ministry for the world is, and what kind of lives they've been called to lead for the sake of the kingdom that his presence is revealing, which his ministry is bringing about. And as we've been journeying through chapter by chapter, week after week, there's been a lot we haven't been able to to talk about together on Sunday mornings. So I hope that those of you who've been on this road with us have been reading every chapter in the Mark Challenge with us, have maybe been engaging with the question and answer videos that are being made every week. Maybe you're talking about the things you're reading with your family or your home church or with people that you talk with after the service on Sundays. But not only is there more in every chapter than we can reasonably talk about on a Sunday morning, but there's so much that actually connects across and between chapters that we haven't always been able to point to because we're using these really handy divisions in the gospel. But these divisions, of course, were not originally part of Mark's writing. He didn't write chapter 10 and then keep going. These were added to help us later. And sometimes they make more clear lines in our minds than are actually intended in Mark's text. Something similar to that is happening to us this week as we move from chapter 10 into chapter 11. And so I actually want to begin unpacking what's happening a little bit before what we heard read for us this morning, turning back to the end of chapter 10, which is really the beginning of the episode that we heard read for us. There's this really wonderful story about the blind man Bartimaeus, which is the first stop on Jesus' day-long journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. So we've, we've joined Jesus maybe at about midday, but there was something that happened in the morning that really set a tone for the whole day. And so there's this last leg of his trip before he enters the city of Jerusalem. He sets out on the road, and Bartimaeus, who normally begs at the side of the road, hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth walking on the road today. And he shouts out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He shouted and he kept shouting, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus has Bartimaeus brought to him. Bartimaeus says that he would like to see. And Jesus tells Bartimaeus, much like the woman who had the issue of blood, that his faith has made him well. He receives his sight. This is an important first interaction on the day that Jesus will enter Jerusalem. 
In many ways, it completes a story that began back in chapter 8 with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's another thing that's pointing towards what we've said is sort of Mark's thesis statement, the way he begins his gospel, that this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One more piece of evidence along the way. So halfway through Mark's gospel, those closest to Jesus finally have enough information to say that he is the Messiah. And now, about three-quarters of the way through his account, Mark is sort of saying, well, now even the blind can see that Jesus is the son of David, the promised ruler of Israel. Mark is kind of saying to us that even if blind Bartimaeus, who is the definition of marginalized, who doesn't have access to the kind of resources and knowledge that the religious and the political elite have. If even this man sees that Jesus is not just a prophet, is not just another healer, is actually the Messiah, the son of David, then what should that mean for the end of this day for Jesus? What should that mean when he actually arrives in Jerusalem in the place of elite power and privilege where the religious and the political rulers come together? And how does our expectation of what that should look like square with what Jesus has told us his reception will actually be? That he will be persecuted, that he will be killed how do these things connect with each other? And more than all this, if Mark is saying that even Bartimaeus can see that Jesus is the Messiah, maybe we're forced to ask ourselves, how do we see Jesus at this point in the story? If we weren't yet ready to confess that Jesus is the Messiah along with Peter halfway in, have we now seen enough to be convinced for ourselves that Jesus is the Messiah? even as this blind man at the side of the road was convinced himself. So that's how Jesus' day of journeying up the mountain toward Jerusalem begins, with Bartimaeus joining the procession. Then they approach Jerusalem, approach the place that is to be the place of Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. And Jesus sends out two of his disciples to get a colt. I'm not sure if you noticed as Christine was reading this for us or as you read this over the last week, but about half of the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is about the circumstances around getting this donkey, about getting this colt. And Mark isn't usually the kind of guy to waste time and words on extraneous details. So what's happening here? The work which is put into conveying Jesus' instructions about the cult is all about the fulfillment of prophecy. First, it's showing us how these prophecies came to be fulfilled. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, it's about showing us that Jesus is intentional in what he's doing, in what's happening. Jesus knows the prophecies, and he's choosing to fulfill them. He knows what's happening around him, where the cult is, what to say when they're questioned. And more than just knowing the past and the present, we're supposed to be getting the picture that Jesus probably knows the future too. He knows what's waiting for him in Jerusalem. He's not going to be surprised. Mark is showing us that Jesus is acting with a purpose in everything he does. 
acting toward a singular goal. So what prophecies is Jesus choosing to fulfill? As is often the case with New Testament applications of Old Testament prophecies, there are many. But the one that's most often cited comes from Zechariah chapter 9, where that prophet says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of the donkey. Jesus comes as a righteous and victorious king of Jerusalem, but lowly and riding on a donkey. A donkey is a symbol of peace instead of war, which connects with the next part of that same prophecy. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Jesus comes on a donkey because he won't wage war to put an end to war. That's never worked before, and it's not going to work this time. War will not end war. He will not ride a war horse to take away Jerusalem's war horses. He will not ride a chariot to proclaim peace. Rather, it is by peace that he will bring peace, and it is in humility that he will be made king. This is a holy purpose, a sacred work. And this is why it's said that the colt has not been ridden. Frequently in the Old Testament, the law dictates that anything which is to be used for a sacred purpose or anything that's to be sacrificed to God cannot have been used for a common purpose beforehand. That a cattle which is sacrificed, I might have put a slide for this and not put a press next thing, but a cattle that's to be sacrificed, it says in Deuteronomy, could not even have worn a yoke previously if it was to be brought to the priests. So in riding on this unridden colt, Jesus is saying that his work is a sacred work, that this work is work to the glory of God, and his entry into Jerusalem and everything that will come afterward is a part of that good work. Even the detail that it's unwritten is not extraneous. But there's one more prophecy which I'd like to highlight before we talk about the rest of what happens. And that is the blessing which Jacob offers to his son Judah way back in Genesis chapter 49. Jacob's blessing says, okay, next slide, sorry. I did put in a slide for that previous point. Jacob's blessing says this, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs has come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to the vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Jesus comes from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, and he rides this donkey to the ultimate fulfillment of Jacob's blessing. He rides this donkey into Jerusalem, and the children of all the other tribes of Israel, the brothers of Judah, all of them coming on a pilgrimage from all the nations of the ancient world, they shout and they sing their praise to this son of Judah, to the son of David, 
to the very Messiah of God. There's a reason why Mark spends so much time talking about this cult. The cult points us to deep truths about who Jesus is, points us to the reasons for the work which Jesus does, and assures us that Jesus has a plan for what's about to come next. And the cult is brought to him with cloaks for a saddle, and Jesus enters the city to great praise and celebration. Now, even this is probably a bit of a strange image to us, a parade entering a city. But this image of a victorious conqueror entering a city was a familiar one in the ancient world. In the intertestamental book of 1 Maccabees, it records for us one such procession to Jerusalem. It says there was a great celebration in the city because this terrible threat to the security of Israel had come to an end. Simon and his men entered the fort singing hymns of praise and thanksgiving while carrying palm branches and playing harps, cymbals, and lyres. This was a familiar image. The people knew what to do, but we don't. So perhaps the closest parallel for us that we might know and be familiar with in Toronto is in 2019 when the Raptors won the NBA championship and had a parade as they victoriously returned to the city. A victorious parade enters the city to the shouts of praise and adoration of a whole people. In fact, for this parade, religious icons even appeared. Saint Nick, the coach of the Raptors. A great enemy had been destroyed as the Syrian oppression on Israel was overcome and Jerusalem celebrated. A great enemy had been conquered as the Golden State Warriors succumbed to the Toronto Raptors and Toronto rejoiced. But these parades are not always the joyful sort and they often have a sort of bitterness associated with them as well because the victor who entered the city was not always guaranteed to be the one who defended the city. Sometimes it was the one who overcame the city's defenses. And in the same way, they would be met out in the streets and a great procession would welcome them in. They would be welcomed and celebrated because this is the cycle of kings and kingdoms. And when you've been conquered before, you know the deal. You know what to do. But imagine if in 2020, the Lakers came to Toronto to celebrate their victory and to reclaim that championship trophy. And our city was expected to meet them in such great numbers with celebration. I don't think we could have done it so well. Or in a more poignant and painful image, imagine if Vladimir Putin was to tour Kiev, should Russia ever take that city. And the expectation was that he was met with joy in the face of such destruction. It's unthinkable. But in this world, it was commonplace. Jesus is received in just such a procession, and there is just as much joy and just as much sorrow as he enters the city. The people rejoice, we've read, but we know that some tremble as well. The religious leaders tremble, fearing Jesus as he has sway with the people. Having started a plot about how they could kill Jesus way back in chapter 3 of Mark, the leaders of Jerusalem now find Jesus at their doorstep. How will their plan work? 
It seems that the people who celebrate in the parade understand and fail to understand what's happening at the same time. They offer this victory procession, which they're familiar with, to the one who even blind Bartimaeus knows is the Holy One of God. And they rightly cry out, Hosanna. And Hosanna, it means save us. But like many other words that we use over and over again, especially words that we use over and over again in the church, Hosanna had lost some of its meaning along the way. It was probably used as a more generic shout of praise, a hallelujah or hooray. They shout, save us, but they only mean yippee. They probably don't anticipate much saving at all. And even if they did hope for salvation, salvation from what? From Rome, perhaps? From the puppets of Rome in the Herods? Fortunately for these people who celebrate, and for us today, Jesus did not come to Jerusalem to be celebrated, did not come to receive their hallelujahs, and much less to receive their hoorays and yippees. He came to save. He came to save from sin and from death, to save us from the curses which have consumed even that which God called to be a blessing, to save us from the comforts which we have called our hopes, to save us from the chains which we have called our homes. Save us, the people cry, and they will be saved. But at what great cost they can scarcely know or imagine. And as the day which began just outside of Jericho draws to its close, Jesus comes to the temple, and there's this strange anticlimax. There's been a tremendous parade, much celebration. Even the blind man sees that Jesus is the Messiah. Surely these people, this city, the temple of the Most High God can see that too. But the crowds, they've disappeared. God, come in the flesh, stands inside of his temple, which is supposed to be the dwelling place of God, and nothing happens. The hour is late, and Jesus leaves the city with the twelve. Something is obviously wrong with Jerusalem. Something is clearly broken at the temple, with the very places and things which God intended to be blessings to Israel and from Israel to the whole world. Something's not right. And so the next day, Jesus naturally still has Jerusalem on his mind, still has the temple which he looked around in his thoughts, and he uses the fig tree to point to something true about the city and true about the temple. He sees the fig tree with leaves but no fruit. It wasn't the season for fruit. But fig trees bear fruit before their leaves are fully present. So this tree is showing the signs of fruit without any fruit, which sounds an awful lot like the temple. Yes, it sounds like the temple, and it sounds like that city of Jerusalem as a whole. Jerusalem was supposed to be the city of peace, a flourishing life, yet its leaders plot murders. 
It is supposed to be a seed of blessing and goodness, yet curses and evil flow from it. It is the city that kills the prophets. It is the place where sin goes unchecked. And this is still the paradox of cities today, intended by God for such beauty, yet so easily seen to be places of deep darkness, even great evil. This is why we say we're a church that's loving the city. We love the city because we see the goodness that God intends for cities. And we're also a church that's loving the city because we understand how deeply the city needs our love in order to become the place that it's meant to be for all people. The temple is supposed to be the habitation of God, but it's barren. God with us came to the temple alone and left unnoticed, did not take up residence. In fact, we see he was deeply disturbed. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, Jesus says, yet it has become a den of robbers. And where all this was happening, where the money changing and the selling doves was happening, it was in the Gentile court, which to the Jewish leaders was not a holy place, not a separate or special place at all. It was just a practical place before you could get to the holy places. But for the Gentiles, it was meant to be the place where they could come closest to God's presence. And the Gentile court was being used for trade and the sale of religious goods and preventing other nations from worshiping God. The changing of money and the selling of doves, they may have been necessary services in the religious law of Israel, but these stalls were taking the place that was meant for the far more necessary thing of the worship of the living God. God's people have become once more what the prophet Jeremiah wrote when he says God's words were, when I wanted them to gather, says the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree even the leaves are withered and what i gave them has passed away from them oh that jesus could have gathered the children of jerusalem together but there was no harvest to gather no grapes on the vine no figs on the tree even the leaves withered all that god had given for blessing they had traded for a quick profit So it is that Jesus addresses the figless people of the temple court in the same way that all fruitless things would be addressed. And the only act of violence ever recorded of our Lord is in the temple. Jesus is the most upset, the most reactive to the sins of religious people and the sins of religious leaders. Jesus takes personal offense to those who abuse the sheep of his fold and who prevent the worship of others who God is calling to himself. People who are caught in sexual sin, Jesus will rebuke. Those known to steal on behalf of Rome, he will tell to return their ill-gotten gains. The sinful and the lost of Israel, he will never turn away. But those who keep people from the proper worship of God, he drives out and he flips their tables. Nothing angers Jesus so greatly as people who should know better keeping other beloved children from their father. Jesus isn't mad that he wasn't recognized at the temple. He isn't upset that the religious leaders are still blind to that which even the blind can see. 
Jesus is angry with a righteous anger for those whose place in the temple had been robbed of them. For those who had no voice or place in this city and in this culture, who had the one thing, the one thing that was devoted to them, taken away. Their relationship with God taken from them. Nothing angers Jesus so greatly as those who harm and dismiss and further marginalize others in the name of God. Jesus desires that Jerusalem would be the place of peace that God made it to be. And Jesus desires that Toronto would reflect the peace of the new Jerusalem until that day when it comes in its fullness. Jesus desires that the temple would be a house of prayer for all nations and that the church today would offer radical welcome to all who seek God's face. Jesus desires that those who bear the name of God to the world would bear the fruit of the Spirit for the good of the world. And that is also the invitation to those who call the church home. All these things which Jesus desires He walked on that road to Jerusalem that they might be possible. He was not surprised that they weren't already so. This is the reason why he came. He came that we might be saved, saved from the disease and broke and darkness which festers in our city streets that first grew in our hearts. Saved from the ways that religion and politics split us up into tribes and cause us to war for power. Saved from the ways that we seek our own good at the expense of the whole created world, which God called us to steward in his name and for his glory. Jesus went to Jerusalem to become our peace, that in his cross and in his resurrection, we might find the only way of life, which brings life to us and life to the whole world. Friends, if we confess that Jesus is the Messiah, if we confess like Peter did and like Bartimaeus did, and if we look to Jesus with our cries for salvation, even as the crowd on the road to Jerusalem did, then Jesus calls us who follow him to seek to make our city a place of life for everyone who calls it home and to make our church a house of prayer for all people, to refrain from all that robs others of their chance to encounter Jesus in our community or to see God's goodness in our neighborhoods. Jesus has answered the cries of all the earth, Hosanna, save us. And he calls us to see in him the answer to those same cries of our hearts, and like Bartimaeus, to join him on his road. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. A couple of invitations to prayer for you, for us all this morning. First, I invite you to pray for Toronto. And as you pray for it, think about what is beautiful, what is good and of God in this city that we should celebrate and join in. And at the same time, notice what's broken. What did Jesus come to save? And secondly, pray for our church Think about how we are being the blessing that Christ has called us to be. And at the same time, be honest about how we might be failing to recognize Jesus as Lord, to be the church as he called us to be. So we'll leave a couple of minutes for you to begin this time of prayer. 
And maybe these are questions that can linger with you throughout the week as you go about your life and your neighborhood in the city, as you think about our church and what God could be doing in our midst. Thank you.